Hey everyone, my name is Jack Kavanagh. You can learn more about me and my story, what I get up to at jack-kavanagh.com and I'm delighted to be here for this episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. I ran down the beach, I dived into the water and my head collided with the sandbank. I broke the fifth vertebrae down in my neck. I woke up in intensive care the following day on life support. I had a metal cage around my head, tubes down my nose and throat to keep me breathing and hydrated and all that goes with it. And the reality was over the next couple of months that I would regain about 15% muscle function. So initially I was paralyzed from the neck down, but I would regain about 15% muscle function, which in reality looks like uh, my shoulders, my biceps and my wrists. And like you said, you go from this free independent young guy that was interested in sports and adventure sports and to a position where I literally couldn't breathe without the aid of a ventilator, let alone scratch my nose for a couple of months. That's a big shift to happen very quickly. And it certainly challenges every single element of your identity. Hello again. Thanks for tuning in. We got some great messages recently, some really positive feedback for the show and for the recent guests we've had, such as Joy Neville, the reflection episodes that we've done. And today we have another brilliant conversation. You won't want to miss this one. We talk to Jack Kavanagh and he opens up and shows vulnerability and shares what is an inspirational story and something that you need to hear. As mentioned, we spoke to a lot of listeners recently and many expressed a desire to support the show further in order to see it grow and get even better. What we've done is set up a Patreon account where you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash sleep, eat, perform, repeat. And there you can sign up to support the show in any form, any way, at any level you would like. We really appreciate it if you do. Also, we hope you're enjoying the 170 plus episodes that have come out to date. We look to many more and hopefully have you on board for all of them. Now, without further ado, let's get over to Jack Kavanagh. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we're striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Jack Kavanagh, pharmacist, speaker and on board of directors of the National Disability Authority. Every so often you have a conversation that changes you, that makes you reflect on perspective. And this was one of those conversations. In 2012, Jack suffered a life-changing spinal cord injury, leaving him with 15% muscle function. Jack has challenged the perceived limitations of the situation every day since, with the question being, why not me? rather than why me. In 2014, Jack gave the acclaimed TEDx talk, Fearless Like a Child, Overcoming Adversity. Watch it. Jack has also received several international awards for his documentary, Breaking Boundaries. As a pharmacist, speaker, and facilitator, Jack is passionate about the value of health and well-being as drivers for business performance, coupled with cultivating diverse and inclusive environments where people belong and are valued. He hosts the Only Human podcast and is part of the board of directors of the National Disability Authority and Centre for Excellence in Universal Design, as well as the Leadership Development Organisation, Common Purpose Ireland. Today we listen to Jack's story, his life in school, and his changing of identity over time. Jack unpacked navigating the world now, how life rewards effort, and why vulnerability and kindness are so important. In the darkest of times, 
Jack chose his response, showed strength and courage. We can all take something from today. Listen through deeply, and again even. Jack Kavanagh, welcome to the show, sir. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you. The sun is shining. It's a Monday. Start the week off well. Um, I'm in good form. Thanks for having me. Jack, you're you're a man that's doing a lot and, and has done a lot. And you're, where do you start to tell the tale as to who you are when someone starts speaking with you? Yeah, God, the, the question of who am I is, is something that I think, well, certainly I constantly am checking in with. I suppose like to, to know me now, you kind of need to know a little bit about me from, from when I was younger. And I think that frames a lot of context. And so like I'm from County Meath, I grew up in the countryside, uh, about a kilometre uh, outside a town on either side of us. And like when I was a kid, I was just up at the beginning of the day, like so many others and going until I passed out at night and used to get involved in all kinds of sports from running to rugby and Gaelic soccer, hurling, tennis, athletics, you know, you, you could put me in anywhere and I would give it a go. And but a big part of my life during those younger years as well was, you know, hopping the fence at the back of the garden with the dog and going wandering out through the fields. And we had uh, out a couple of fields back. There was a place that all the locals called Tiernan Oak. Um, and you had to walk across a little plank and a stream to get there. And uh, I would just go out there and go wandering. And I love being in nature and something that has really been a thread in my life and so that was kind of home life and and then as I went through my younger years I suppose I entered school and the phone calls home started and I was constantly getting phone calls home for being disruptive for distracting other kids for causing trouble but behind all of that I was a very sensitive kid and for those first couple of years like I can remember being very kind of emotionally attuned to people and noticing when others were having a hard time and, and I would check in with them and their stories going back as, as young as junior and senior inference where that was the case. Um, but I was kind of sidelined by a number of teachers in those early years as a bit of a disruptive troublemaker and a problem child and and that they got the behaviours that result from from that kind of treatment. And over the years, it became clear, actually, there might be a bit more to this. And I was diagnosed with quite bad dyslexia at the time. And it was around then I got introduced to the second kind of teacher. And that was uh, additional resource. And I got to spend time with an educational psychologist and so on as well. And, and those teachers really instilled in me uh, what is baked into the education system now, which is the essence of a growth mindset. And, and, you know, I was coming in week after week doing the spelling tests and getting two out of 10. And I was, you know, really struggling and um, writing everything upside down and back to front. And they took me under their wing and showed me that none of us get it right all the time. Um, you're starting from where you're starting from and here are some ways that you can learn and apply yourself and the cool thing about that was that I began to internalize without them explicitly saying it that it was okay to try and to get it 
wrong and try again the next day and keep coming back. And as a friend of mine, Jerry Duffy would say, that really taught me that life rewards effort. That became something that I brought with me over the next uh, number of years as I transitioned from primary to secondary school. And the contrast of the two types of teachers that I experienced in primary school, it's only reflecting back now that I can see actually just viewing that from a helicopter distance, like that's a perfect lesson in leadership as well, because the environments that you create for people either disempower and disable them or empower and enable them. And you get the kind of behavior that, that you expect from people. I can remember um, going from a position of where my dad was reading me the Harry Potter books to be being able to read them myself. And so it became absolutely obvious to me that the right thing to do was to go to a boarding school because, you know, they might hand me a wand and, uh, and I'd be away on my broomstick or whatever. But uh, I entered into this kind of wor- world of magic and it led me to choose to go to a boarding school and had this great time ultimately. But the highs and lows that everyone goes through as a teenager being in boarding school for six years with 400 other guys. And um, there's times where, you know, I was badly bullied. And if I'm honest about it, there was times when I wasn't as kind as I would have liked to be been um, to some of my friends as well. And uh, you go through all the questioning as a teenager of like, how do I fit in and the body image and questioning the religion you're being brought up in. And you're just constantly pushing out against the limits of the comfort zone. And during those years, it became, in contrast to my younger years, uh, very clear that I was applying myself and becoming very diligent. And I really took that idea of life rewards effort on and I worked very hard. But I played a lot of sport as well. And that gave me a sense of balance. And sports taught me different things. And I did a lot of running. I played a lot of rugby then I found my ultimate passion, which was uh, during those years, which was windsurfing. Running taught me what it was to be alone with myself. And it was such an important space for me. I'd leave everything behind when you go out on a run and it was just one foot in front of the other. And I loved that. But inevitably, the voice would start inside your head and it wasn't always a nice voice. And I started to realize that actually I didn't always have to listen to it that I could challenge it and I didn't have to be so critical of myself but that I could be balanced and more encouraging of myself and so that became a really important piece for me and I think running when I did it competitively um also show as much as I did it for for leisure and fun when I did it competitively it really showed me that we have more in us than we think we do. And, you know, when you get to that space where you think there's nothing left that you can give, actually there's a reserve somewhere that comes from somewhere. So that was huge. And then rugby, I played a lot uh, through secondary school and and from the age of eight, actually. That taught me what it was to work towards something as as a shared objective as a team and how I fit into that environment as well. But I suppose windsurfing became this all-consuming piece for me because, as I said, I had a huge affinity for nature, and I used to, my dad used to bring me um, 
to do water sports camps and kayaking and sailing and stuff um when we would go on holidays down the west of ireland and and that led me to the world of windsurfing and i just completely fell in love with it for so many reasons like there was a huge amount of elements to it but that sent me on this pursuit of trying to spend as much time as i could pursuing the environments that i wanted to be in which was at the beach really and so i became a lifeguard and i did my power boating instructing and then i became a windsurfing instructor and i would spend my summers working in the west of ireland in cloche ishka in belmullet instructing other young people to windsurf and uh, to surf and and working as a lifeguard and i can honestly say that was kind of the first place that i really felt at home that people got me and I loved the freedom and adventure of that environment. And those kinds of words uh, were the essence of, of who I am, you know, that healthy lifestyle, exploring with good people and in an environment where I could challenge myself um, with things that were interesting to me. So there's a lot, there's a lot to get into there. It's just, when you're talking about it, you're talking about being given support for dyslexia, the additional resources, and you noticing that there's a growth mindset effect there. You noticing that running was a way for you to challenge your own thoughts and not just listen to the voice inside your head as as fact. Was were you aware of that as it was ongoing, or was just something you naturally learned, or you you learned from reflection as you got older? Because there's a lot of people probably who could talk about their history, talk about their experiences, but without sense making it as well as you have. Is that an ongoing process or was that happening for you as as you grew older? Yeah, I think it's really only something that I, I've had clarity on as I've had space from it. I think when we get a bit of distance from things, you know, we, we actually build a better perspective on, on what was happening there. And it's why, look, reflection is so important for personal development. Yeah, so I, w- I would say that. But I can remember uh, one thing that became ingrained in me was I had this additional resource support with Joe and Joe was an educational psychologist and she would, you know, I would turn up and I felt safe with, with her, which was really, it's really, really important that when, when we're maybe struggling with something as a child anyway, that we have an older adult that we feel safe with to explore how we might improve or or deal with that and i felt safe with joe and i felt safe to explore where i was starting from but also to stretch myself and she would encourage me to stretch myself i remember in fifth class i think it was at the start of the year turning up in her office and she said what do you want to be able to do by the end of the year And I said, I want to be able to spell the word phenomenal. And like, that's a mad thing for an 11 year old to say. And I don't know where it came from or why that was the thing that I wanted to do. But week after week, I would come back and it started with me saying F-I-N-I-M-O-L, you know, and I was just completely getting it arseways. And I would come back week after week after week and I just learned so much through that process and the encouragement that came with that. 
What was really important was that she lowered the bar for success for me. So I'd set a big goal there for myself at the time, given the context of where I was starting at. But she lowered the bar for success because it wasn't the case that we spent the hour that we were with each other every week just doing that. We maybe spent three to four minutes of each session. And what she was doing for me was she was giving me a way in and a bite-sized chunk that meant that I could keep turning up again and again. Because had I spent the whole time trying to do it, it would have been discouraging for me, you know. But she gave me just enough to see that, okay, although I might have gotten it wrong on the first attempt, that I could come back and get an extra two letters. And then we'd park it and move on to the next thing. But we come back again and again, uh, week after week. And, and that idea, again, these are things that she never explicitly said. But like that's an example of lowering the bar for success. It gave me a way in and, and kind of a way to um, engage repeatedly. And I use that in terms of my health and lots of different things. But yeah, coming back to your ultimate question, I think it's only with distance that we kind of get clarity on things. Jack, I'd love to d- dig into vulnerability. You've you've mentioned the fact that you might have lacked kindness. You you know you were bullied. You, you've talked on about inclusion already in the school environment, but the cultivation revealing of vulnerability. A lot of people don't understand, or maybe don't realize how profound it can be to to bring people together and how it can help people understand themselves a little bit more. Mm. Where do you in terms of helping people understand the power of vulnerability? Yeah, you, you kind of cite the example I gave around school there and, and what actually the reality of that scenario is when I was when I was younger, I was always quite a lean, lean and slim guy and I used to get slagged and I was in a big rugby school and I used to get kind of slagged for being so skinny and like it gets quite vicious sometimes and and so on and I just internalized so much about body image in those younger years first second year in school and then in third year um me and my close group of friends kind of probably took out a little bit of our own insecurities on one of our close mates David we were really unkind to him that year and it's a strange thing for a young person to be in an environment where these are my friends, but why are they treating me like this? The year after, again, you get a bit of distance from it. And I realized how awful I'd been and apologized to him. That was probably the biggest piece of growth for me that happened in my teenage years was that apology. In the last, in our fifth year in school, we did a retreat that was led by the guys in sixth year that had done it the year before, and it was called Kairos. And that was the first time that we or I had the experience of coming together with people, as you said, and having space to reflect on life, to maybe share some of the things that I suppose at that age to name realities that were true for all of us, but we felt like we're hidden worlds, if that makes sense, to name some of the things that we were concerned about in our lives or we'd struggled with or that uh, we were embarrassed about about ourselves or all of these different things and it was a really again I use the word safe space for us to explore that 
I think that experience probably was the beginning of instilling in me the power of bringing people together in those kinds of spaces. What's amazing is, and I've certainly learned this over the years of post-injury um, through so many conversations, but also like working with groups, is any time we see or experience someone revealing a part of themselves or sharing an experience in which they feel vulnerable, what everybody else that sees that happening, their experience of it is a demonstration of strength or bravery. And I think it's something that we can really reflect on that. And I was with a group yesterday and we were talking about this idea that people think resilience looks like, you know, hard charging and always on. And, you know, I have, I'm bulletproof and all of these kinds of things. And I get back up immediately when I get knocked back down. But actually, resilience is something that we can often only see when we look back. And it's the time when you felt lonely and dejected and disillusioned and disconnected and at rock bottom and like there was no way forward. And yet you did something to keep going. And in that place where you felt so exposed, looking back, you can see that's the place where I was at my strongest. That's the place where I was resilient. It ties so well into, into vulnerability. Definitely. And having gone through your, your school journey coming up to 2012, you have a spinal cord injury and it changes you from a person who is playing all these sports to a wheelchair user who has to now readjust their identity. How important and did you lean on them lessons that you learned from your people like Joe in order to frame what was going on? I think one of the best things you say is the perceived limitations that you face. Often we frame what limits each and every one of us without understanding exactly is there any evidence behind it? How important mm -hmm. were them lessons for you to face into that, that injury and post-injury? Again, I'll pull back to the last, the beginning of my last summer down to west of Ireland. And um, I remember cycling off to the beach on one of the first days I was instructing after work. And I cycled off to the beach and leaned my bike against the sand dunes. And I strolled down onto the beach and sit down. It's a scene that's etched into my memory. And I can see footprints in the sand and I can see the sun is setting over the breaking waves. And I just caught myself in the moment. For the first time, I can really remember, I just had this awareness that I was actually alive. And that's a mad thing to realize, <laughs> you know, that you get the chance to be here at all. Then I had the realization that actually I was proud of myself. The work that I put in to be studying a health science degree in college and have a year under my belt. I was excited about where that was bringing me. I was feeling comfortable with the people that were around me. I was looking forward to the job that I was doing and spending the rest of the summer there. And so kind of was the first time I could remember starting to get answers to some of the questions about myself. And the essence of that was actually that I was becoming comfortable with myself. And at the end of that summer, I went away on holidays with, with some of my best friends and in Portugal, as we alluded to earlier. And on the first day, I ran down the beach, dived into the water and my head collided with the sandbank. I broke the fifth vertebrae down in my neck. We could go through the whole story, but the reality is that I woke up in intensive care the following day on life support. 
had a metal cage around my head, no tubes down my nose and throat to keep me breathing and hydrated and all that goes with it. And the reality was over the next couple of months that I would learn to, or I would regain about 15% muscle function. So initially I was paralyzed from the neck down, but I would regain about 15% muscle function, which in reality looks like uh, my shoulders, my biceps and my wrists. And like you said, you go from this free independent young guy that was interested in sports and adventure sports and to a position where I literally couldn't breathe without the aid of a ventilator, let alone scratch my nose for a couple of months. And um, that's a big shift to happen very quickly. And it certainly challenges every single element of your identity. And you go through, you know, it's a loss and you go through the grief of it. You go through the denial and the anger and the bargaining and the frustration and, you know, all of the things. And it sometimes you experience one of them for a week or all of them in a day. You peel back different layers of it over time. But an interesting thing happened in that in the intensive care bed, the first friend in to see me was Gareth and he had this like smiling but tear filled face. And I couldn't speak and he was kind of overcome with emotion He and so he couldn't really either. But from somewhere I just mouthed the words, it's going to be okay. And I think I said it as much because I needed it to believe it as he did. But very early on, that was kind of a choice to say, this won't be the end, you know, I'm only getting started and, and this is, yes, not ideal in any way shape or form but actually I had already started to choose a response in that moment that was something that didn't happen once that happened time after time after time and another interesting part of the story is that on the my parents were on a flight over to Portugal to find me in hospital and my mum was asking dad on the plane why Jack why would this happen to Jack? And it's a completely understandable question, you know, when when you face adversity or a setback or a big challenge like we all have in different parts of our lives, you you fall into the victim scenario and you say, Why me sometimes? And it gives you a bit of room to breathe and to come to terms with the scenario. But actually after a little while it doesn't bring bring you anywhere. And I went through that as I was going through the grieving process why me why me why me and i only learned about the conversation my parents had about three years later and my dad responded to my mum on the plane that night and he said well why not jack why should it have happened to anybody else on the beach he was dead right and that was over time the choice that i realized was there as well and i was guided in that choice by some people around me but like you talk about choosing your response and so on i started to ask but why not me that liberates you in a huge way because it takes you from a position of the victim of a scenario which was a freak accident like it was nobody's fault to a place where actually now i can choose what happens next 
lots of little things needed to happen next to bring me towards where I was going. And, and so all of this was happening around the time that I was trying to even begin to consider how I would reconstruct any kind of identity. But a big part of it for me was that piece of being a fit, independent young guy. Although it was my consultant's job to tell me all the things that I would never do again, I just really didn't gel with this idea of a dependent life and of being so restricted in all, from all the things that I would love to do. That was an important, it wasn't that I was denying the reality of where I was or where I was starting, because that was the beginning and the point from which we were moving forward. But I didn't choose to let that be the story that would un unfold. And so my aim became to become as independent as I possibly could to challenge all of the perceived limits, as you said, that were being set in my way. And to re-engage, yes, in different ways and to adapt the ways in which I would do it, but to re-engage with the environments that I that I loved, the out in the outdoors, to complete my studies as a health professional. And over the years, what would happen is that I suppose my eyes and mind would be opened a little bit wider to to what was possible when I started to see that, you know what, there's something more inside of all of us if we really believed that we had capacity and started to take action towards it and so that started kind of the ball in motion rebuilding an identity but it started with the idea of being that fit young independent guy and I remember in hospital all the advice was you need to go for a power wheelchair you need to go for a power wheelchair uh, your level of function like you won't be able to manage in a manual chair and it just didn't gel again with the perception that I, I had of myself as this free independent young guy and I chose the manual wheelchair and I appreciated that it was going to be a challenge for a couple of years and that I wasn't going to be as independent as I would like and there was trade-offs but actually it was the thing that led me to stretch myself in so many different ways. And I remember being in the uh, rehab bed and a mentor uh, that came in uh, who had a, a spinal injury a few years previously. And he came in and he said, I, I was telling him about this vision I had of, of I'll be driving a van from my wheelchair and I'll have different bikes that allow me to explore different environments and I'll keep some of them in the back of my van and it'll give me great independence and I'll be much more self-sufficient and so on and um and a few years later he turned up at my house and he said Jack do you remember that conversation we had he was like look out in the garden you're after doing it like your van is out there with your bikes in it and that's exactly what you're doing um and I think it's the, the piece of having a vision for yourself. Um, and I certainly had that vision for that piece of my life. And, and probably the biggest vision of all was to get back to college for the following year. When I did that, 
that kind of allowed me to reset what else might be possible. There's, there's so much in that, how you managed to show courage in that time. You know, you chose the response, life rewards effort. Well, what next, what now? So there's, there's so much in that, Jack. Thanks for sharing can, all of that. Can, um, I, can I just jump, jump in and, and say one more on. thing on that? And the way I've described it there sounds like um, I was strong all of that time, and I certainly was not. There were very dark periods in those initial couple of years. Like there was, I remember very upsetting times during rehab. Um, one of my biggest role models took his own life. And that was a huge part of my journey because he was a huge role model for me in the windsurfing space. And I thought he had everything. And when he took his own life, again, it was a decision point for me to to really be transparent in my journey because I thought he had it all and yet he didn't have a space where he could express the challenges he was going through. And, and so me sharing the tough places that I went to over the years, I did so in the hope that that would create a space for others to open conversation as well. And I can remember probably the lowest point of all was the first holiday that I went on after my injury. I went down to the west of Ireland and I turned 21 while I was down there. And this place, the west of Ireland, that had represented so much freedom to me in so many ways and such an adventure. I was in Connemara and it was now more restricting and a more hostile environment than I'd ever experienced before using a wheelchair because I just didn't have any of the tools that I needed to explore the environment in the way I was used to. For days and weeks, being so low that I wouldn't even make eye contact with people. And I was surrounded by people that cared about me. I wouldn't make eye contact with them because I didn't want them to see the level of pain that I was experiencing and how much I was hurting as I came to terms with the, re the new realities. At that time, I was so dependent on others. And it was a huge, probably the most important period because that was when I really broke down for the first time, really significantly. That was my rock bottom moment of completely losing it and descending into just an, an awful state and then opening up about it and being able to sob and sob and sob and and shake with with the brutality of the scenario as I sat at one of the beaches that I used to windsurf on. And so, although it might sound on the initial telling, <clears throat> like I chose my response and, and away with me, that was something I came back to again and again and again while the grieving process went on. I appreciate that, Jack, given the, the full perspective of what it's like to encounter and or to go through such a challenge. Jack, we'd, um, we'd love to, your growth mindset has jumped up several times here today. And it's, it's something that the two of us would have, you know, read a lot on and, and tried to learn about it through experience. But you, with all that, that has happened and what would happened, you then went, you know, you studied pharmacy, health and wellness, RSSI, positive psychology and health. And with all that, all that study, all that education, what are you trying to do with that? I mean, what's the beacon of light? What's the energy you're trying to emit with um, that, that chapter? It's a great question. Um, I was probably 
drawn to all of those things. Like I, I, I wanted to be a health professional for any number of reasons in the early days to be a partner in someone's health journey. And, and I just loved being with people and communication was probably ultimately always my strong point. And so, you know, after a scenario like I had, it was going to be hard for me to fully engage with the full job spec of working in the community in the way that I wanted. And now I still do it maybe two days a week, but I had to kind of lean on, on my strengths and I started studying and becoming very interested in health from a broader perspective and very much into mindfulness and meditation and breathwork practices and got very much into the kind of coaching psychology side of things um, and positive psychology. Although I really don't like that phrasing, that word, uh, the the positive uh, piece, Um, because really I think it's about restoring balance and showing people how they can live well and and lean on strengths and develop coping mechanisms that are healthier rather than unhealthy and and so on but i became very interested in, in that broader perspective of health um because i needed it and it was part of my rebuilding journey and when i was seeing the benefits of it and experiencing that in my own life as I applied the different tools and techniques and I started to share that with other people and I look around and as I experienced at at a certain point so many people feel disillusioned disconnected and like they're wearing masks and I wanted to create environments where it was okay for people to lower those masks where they felt more connected to themselves and the people around them. And they felt that little bit less disillusioned and, and maybe had some tools to, to lean on um, to help with that. And, and so over the years, uh, that's become my journey has been sharing a lot of the things that I have learned along the way, but also bringing these practices uh, to people and different environments um, and and so that's been a big piece of it for me and that leads me to working with uh, young people a lot but it also leads me to working in, in corporate environments a huge amount and um, and it, it's work that I really enjoy because I didn't study any of those things out of, the, of feeling I should but mostly because I wanted to it came from a place of curiosity rather than anything else. There's so many lessons that you've shared with us today. Um, so we're very grateful for the conversation we've had so far. But when we started the show, we wanted to try and understand what high performers, how they, how they tick, what makes them achieve everything that they put their minds to and sometimes fail as well and what helps them overcome it. And a lot of people would have thought we should only be interviewing elite sports people. Kind of get that, but we understand and we know ourselves that it's so relative to individuals and you're the epitome of high performance in terms of facing into studies again and going through uh, postgraduate dips, getting your diploma in coaching to being a creator of an award-winning documentary, a pharmacist, a keynote speaker and hosting your own podcast. So the question we'd like to ask you, Jack, is what does high performance mean to you? You know, like uh, at its core, I, I think for me, it's 
coming back to the question again and again, how am I showing up for myself and how am I showing up for the people around me? Um, like, how am I showing up for myself? How am I setting myself up to have the best opportunity at delivering well on the things that are most important to me? You look at high performers in the traditional sense and that looks like, okay, how am I taking care of my body? How am I taking care of my mind? How am I taking care of my emotional health? Like, am I aligned spiritually? Who are the people in my environment? How am I setting up my physical environment? Like all those kinds of things are parts of the puzzle as much as the, the habits that you do and the routines and so on. But they're all individual for, for, each in, for each person. But coming back to that question again and again, how am I showing up for myself as the starting point? That puts you in a position to bring the best of yourself, which is different on any given day. And if you're doing that more often than not, being nice to yourself when you fall off track so that you can get back on again. And if you're showing up for yourself in small ways regularly like that, you're going to be better for everybody else around you and for the things that are most important in your life. And you're going to perform at a higher level innately. And it comes back to a place of realizing that you matter as an individual and that you've got so much to contribute and that you don't have to do it all at once and you don't have to do it all at all. But because you matter and you have value inherently, wouldn't it be wonderful if you gave yourself permission to be nicer to yourself, to give yourself a chance to do things that would support you so that you can support others along the way as well. And so I think baked into it is a lot of people get into high performance techniques and tactics and so on uh, and get very ingrained in it. But it's from a place of not having a great opinion of themselves and feeling that they have to achieve things uh, to validate themselves. But actually, if you came from it from a place of the fact that you're here at all, one in 400 trillion is the chance that you will be born. And that you get to experience any of this there's no one else with the same life experiences fingerprint way of being in the world to you and if actually you realize that and came at applying some of the things that you would discuss in with amazing guests and if you applied some of those techniques and tools in your life from a place of valuing yourself rather than you felt that you had anything else to prove that's the big switch, I think. And that's something that I really had to uh, internalize over the years was why I was doing these things was initially driven by a discomfort with myself after the injury and feeling that I had to show people that I was still capable. And there was a certain point at which I looked at myself in the mirror and said, regardless of any of that, just by itself, you matter and you have you're valuable and my default approach started to come from much more of a place of caring about myself and that then it became easier to do all of these things in the first place jack thanks very much for for coming on for for telling part of your story really sharing and opening up with with us and with everyone listening to it we um we got loads from it thank you very much and stay well stay well and stay healthy Thanks again for your time today. Cheers, lads. Thanks very much, Jack. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. 
This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.